Hi, I'm Robert Kurtzman, director of The Wishmaster. Uh, my name's Pete Atkins. I'm the writer of this movie. It's exciting to be sitting here with Bob Kurtzman, who directed it. And we're going to talk our way through it and hope you enjoy it and hope we can shed some light on it for you. Wes Craven, executive producer on this film. Wes got involved with the film. I believe he had read a draft of the script and um, was interested in it and they went on looking for directors and eventually I got involved with it. I had worked uh, with Wes Craven uh, on maybe the last six films with Wes that he had directed. My company KMB Effects Group had done the effects on him for him. On People Under the Stairs, we began working with him on that. So over the years, we've worked with Wes a lot and I think uh, that was part of the reason he came on board with Wishmaster was because of my involvement as director and also KMB's involvement. And he, I think, knew that we were gonna try to give it 110% and try to give, uh, give the movie a look that would elevate it uh, above a lot of other product out there. Hi, I'm Greg Nicotero, second unit director and makeup effects guy on set. Actually, I didn't do many makeup effects because I was too busy uh, figuring out where to put the camera and shoot some gags and have fun and do some goofy stuff. The opening credits was something that I shot the entire sequence for the last day of shooting of the movie. We actually used the same room as the throne room that is featured later. And they redressed it a little bit. Art department just walked in and put all this cool stuff out. And I'm like, oh cool, I can shoot this and I can shoot this. Bob's main comment was, well give me some slow sweeping shots back and forth so that, you know, and they have to be long because I'm gonna put all the credits over it. So, you know, it's not gonna be short, quick cuts. We actually used a, um, a trough that we had a black light underneath so that they had this lava stuff that, that our department got that was the same stuff I think they used in like Dante's Peak or Volcano or something. And we poured it into the trough and then the black light sort of gave it that kind of lava glow to it. I think if I'm not mistaken they also um, digitally enhanced it a little bit to make it look a little a little more like you're going. But the big joke here was we'd be like pouring the stuff down the little trough and seeing if we could get it to pour directly into the hole. So it was like, and it goes down the hole, and yay! Uh, you know, so we did this a couple times. That was just goofy stuff, you know. This we had, we had a good time. The notion that genies only come from the lamp is a relatively recent notion. In, in the ancient myths, they could basically inhabit any inanimate object. And one of the things they were particularly fond of living in was stones. Um, not necessarily precious stones, but I figured, you know, I could take a little bit of artistic license. And the earth gave birth to man. And the fire gave birth to the jinn. Angus Grimm does a voiceover here during the scroll, um, telling the ancient myth of the jinn and he is the tall man from the Phantasm films. I had worked with him on Phantasm too, and known him for years, and when this came up, uh, we couldn't really find a character in the film that was right for him, so we had him do this ancient voiceover thing, which was great, because it's, you know, I hear it, and I hear the voice of the tall man. Fear the gene. Here we are, the exterior of the great Persian palace, which uh, is a digital matte shot, Area 51, did this shot and it's really terrific. It's got the nice lightning, the old gothic lightning feel. To it. it was kind of cool watching them build this because, yeah. you know, it starts off as like a, a wireframe 
and then they can move the camera angle up or down. You can move it further back in the distance. They put the move in past the Ahura Mazda statues, which are great because they're established here in the opening. And we see that's the last image of the film, basically, too. And we shot all this in uh, two days on a stage in Chatsworth. And we had all these wire rigs flying guys back and uh, lots of people running around in robes screaming. A lot of the crew, in fact, yeah. and a lot of the office staff were... Uh, we got everybody the in there extras. made them throw wardrobe on so we could really fill this up. And here's some uh, Gary Tunnicliffe uh, from Image Animation did some makeup effects on the film as well. And he handled the, the, the effects in this sequence. There's uh, Jake McKinnon from KMB, he's one of our mechanics at the shop. And of course I had him around and he was perfect. He looked, uh, looked right with that beard and everything, <laughs> so I had to put him in the movie. And this is Gary's work. Yeah, this right is here. Gary's work. This, this is, is great stuff. Skeleton ripping out of out of his body. Now this is something I thought for sure we'd get killed at at the uh, ratings time. Yeah. Submitted the film and uh, they didn't even say anything about this sequence. It was amazing. Well, I guess you know they've always got this thing about cartoon violence as opposed to real life violence. This is so plainly supernatural fantasy horror that maybe they give us cut us the same. Right. Slant. I, I totally believe that's the reason we got away with a lot of this stuff. And uh, here's a. Uh, a creature that KMB did, Greg Funk playing the Snake Man, and Greg actually plays three characters in this film. He gets his jaw ripped off in the police station, and at the end of the film, he's also the statues that the little statues that turn to life and come to life. Um, and there might even be one other spot in the yeah. film. <laughs> it was funny. I mean, these are the type of things where we had somebody's life cast at the shop, and these guys are all SAG uh, puppeteers and actors. So it was easy just saying, here, we're going to do this makeup on you and throw you in this. I know you'll put up with it. It's unlike a lot of, you know, I can't get any major talent to put this on. And if you put it on an extra, you know how that works. They, they rarely know, you know how to operate a makeup or how to, you know, uh, manipulate a makeup. The makeup guys always know how to over-exaggerate their movement and, and really bring it to life. So I, I try to get makeup effects guys to play these, you know, kind of secondary uh, effects throwaways all the time. They're not major roles, a couple lines they come on, they put in, you know, on a suit and growl and crawl across the floor. <laughs> but they also go, as well as like knowing how to work it and being willing to put up with it, they also go for it in a way that you can't necessarily expect extras to do, right? I mean, they, they oh, want yeah. to sell the makeup, oh, yeah, you know, so they'll yeah. give you the twitches and the groans and totally. the shudders. If you notice when when Zoroaster pulls out the opal and he holds it out and it begins to glow, that's an optical enhancement, but underneath the opal we built this like really cool little thing with lights around it. It was actually Alan McFarlane built it and uh, it has like hundreds of little light bulbs around it and it sits on your hand and it pulses up and down so it gives it a natural illumination around the hand and everything because you need that interactive light around the hand so when you do the optical it's not just glowing in his hand and nothing else is glowing. It had to have interactive light. So we built this special thing for that so that we would be able to um, get that on all the optical or all the uh, opal glowing shots. So and that, there's also um, this fine gem cutter, Martin Chung, uh, the art uh, or the um, props guy, Ed, had found this guy downtown 
and uh, took the uh, glass down. We've got samples of glass. He took it down, and the guy cut these really beautiful uh, opals. And uh, they're all faceted and all polished glass, but they look like real, like, you know, giant rubies or diamonds or whatever. I was trying to figure out how we'd do this. I figured, okay, KMB will probably sculpt something, and then we'll pour it up out of resin and polish it. But you never get anything that clear without the bubbles in the center and stuff. Even if you evacuate it in a chamber, it, you just can't get that kind of clarity like you get with glass. So they found this guy, and he, he was terrific. I, I was blown away when I got these things. Jesus Christ! What the hell is he doing? It's the only ship in the L.A. area. In the, it's down there all Long the time Beach or, or something? Yeah, it's there all the time. And, you know, the other ships we'd looked at, uh, they were loading them down with cargo, so they were actually lower in the water. The deck was almost like five feet from the from the uh, top of the boat, you know. We wanted something really high that we could get that box up there high enough to drop on uh, Ted Raimi here. The guy who gets crushed in this scene is uh, Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother. He's been on Sequest and Xena. He's in Xena, Warrior Princess. And um, I've known him since Evil Dead 2. And I said, this would be a really funny thing for him. Because this, out of the, anything in this movie, this is the most Sam Raimi thing in the film. This sequence, I feel, so <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be really funny to crush Ted Raimi in it. <laughs> and Beaumont, of course, is Robert Englund, who you'd worked with on some of the Freddy movies, right? I've known since Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and worked with him on his first directorial debut, uh, 976 Evil. I was a key makeup guy for Kevin Yeager on set, so I applied all the, the key makeups in the film, and so I you know, worked really closely with Robert for months on that. So I've known him for years, and uh, it was fun getting right. him in this. Can I help you? Maybe. I've got a pawn shop down in the garment district, Fifth and Thule, the armpit of the universe. Anyway, this is a this came in this introduction morning. of John Biner here as Doug Clegg, uh -huh. the pawn shop uh, like guy that Etchison uh, pawns oh, off the uh, opal to. He had known the casting people. And they had presented him to me and said uh, he'd like to do it. And I said, great, John yeah. Biner's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think he played it with a little sense of humor, which wow. is cool. Yeah. And I, we had him in this really obnoxious coat. There's <laughs> <laughs> Wendy Benson. And Chris Lemon. Chris Lemon. Wendy's playing Shannon. And Nick Merritt. She's playing both those characters. <laughs> now, Chris Lemon is playing Nick Merritt. Actually, there's a weird little anecdote for, uh, for real trivia buffs. We have the son of Jack Lemon, who was one of the movie Odd Couple, and we have the nephew of Jack Klugman, who was the TV Odd Couple. So uh, we, we've kind of got second generation Odd Couples from different media in the movie. I had to the say the kid got blinded, right? I had to say something too, just so that uh, when uh, Chris watches the Laserdisc and listens to this, uh, he's probably... Uh, the only person that's ever hit a director in the nose. He was oh. swinging like this uh, nightstick, Kane Hodder's nightstick from this oh, later yeah? sequence around on the set one day and I was rushing around. I ran right past him and he, the thing whacked me right in the nose. I, didn't I was walking around that. like this for, like, for half a day and he just kept running up going, oh man, I'm sorry I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I hope this doesn't affect my position in the final <laughs> <Right>. cut. <laughs> yeah, you're on the, I'm going to put you on the editing room floor. Yeah. It is so old. It's a date. Wait, you know what it is? I'm just... 
Here we are at the infamous tennis scene. Oh yeah. Now this this scene almost didn't make it into the film because uh, uh, the executives at Live didn't like the dirt pile in the background. But. Which actually isn't a dirt pile; it's an honest-to-god cliff. But. Uh, <laughs> But here is, um, this is an introduction of uh, Alex Amberson, uh, the heroine, and she's played by Tammy Lauren, and uh, Josh Aikman, who uh, Tony Crane plays. Hey. Tony's in the Big Easy TV series down in New Orleans, he shoots that down there. And also just to prove again what a small world it is, Tony's father um, was the gynecologist who delivered Tony Randall's daughter, Sophia. Tony's a guy I've worked with on the Hellraiser movies and Bob's worked with as well. So it's a, it's a very small world. It's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tammy's done a lot of, uh, she's been working as an actress for years. She started, in fact, oh I God. swear I saw her in an episode Viral of Quincy the other day. She was oh, like yeah? 12 years old. <laughs> but uh, when we were casting on this film, we, we looked at a lot of actresses, and Excellent. Tammy was actually the first person to come in and try out for the part. No other color choices. And I really didn't find anybody, you know, as good as her. I went right she back to her and said, the first one that came oh, in, that's, that's it. She's it. Oh, uh, this is a female um, heroine, and in, in a lot of films, they, they come off like complete bimbos oh, or airheads or running around uh, screaming a lot. Which she does a lot of screaming in this, but I think she's a really strong character. And that thanks to Pete, he actually wrote a really good yes. character here. Well, and thanks to Bob, because, you know, the thing is, you nail the character on paper, but if the director and the actress or the actor don't work together to bring it to life, so what? You know, things can fall very flat. And I agree with Bob. I think Tony's really strong. And also, I think she really appeals to, uh, to female viewers. My wife hadn't seen the movie until the cast and crew screen, and she thought Tommy was great. We actually step printed a lot of shots like that and oh, slow moed yeah. them down. She actually goes into slow motion halfway through the shot, and then the subliminal flashes come in, and she comes right. out of it in slow motion as well. So these are the things we needed the Avid to cut on. Right. Because they were all single frame cuts and and it was almost, you would have to create an optical to do that on film. And um, we just didn't have the time to, to experiment. We needed to get an Avid so we could see what exactly it was going to look like so we could sign off on it and have the opticals created from the right. film. But also Bob really made that moment significant. I remember Pierre David, one of the producers, saying to me, you know, well she breathes on the opal, it's not a big enough moment. And I kept saying, look, if you get a good director, it'll be a big enough moment. And uh, well, I, I, as you say, you've got all that avid intercutting, but also you've got the kind of optical slow-mo or something when she breathes in. You, in other words, you really do make it a big moment. Right. You make it perfectly significant. Which, it, which is actually something that came from Wes's camp. Um, a lot of this stuff on the avid. We didn't have an avid, and Wes's editor, uh, Patrick Lussier, oh, yeah. was uh, working on Scream and in prep and had an avid. So we gave him some video footage, and he cut this stuff on the Avid for us. We said, we want to see something, you know, some quick, some little flashes and all this kind of weird stuff going on. And so he put together like a sample thing, which helped us get the Avid from, from live. They right. gave us the money then to, to bring an Avid in and, and play around with it for a few days and use those examples as, as like a you know, baseboard or a springboard to, to find um, some good stuff for the... Uh, the soul-sucking scene and 
various other quick subliminal flash things that were going going to happen in it. No, I can't. I've got to put my girls through their paces. Thanks. Yeah. This is really important, so call me later, okay? You're the best, Josh. I owe ya. Yeah. Well, how about that dinner, then? I see if I can throw in a quick comment about the names of a lot of these characters, if, if any of the fans of these movies are also fans of the literature, um, they should get a kick out of a lot of the names. Robert's playing uh, somebody whose surname is Beaumont, uh, Ted Raimi's playing somebody whose surname is Finney, um, the dock worker that steals the opal is called Etchison, the guy that brings her the porn shop is called Clegg. The professor is called Durleth. These are all names of famous writers of horror and fantasy fiction. So I just uh, dropped them throughout the movie. Uh, Aikman is in there as well. Um, so it's just you know, it's it's a little kick for fans to uh, to spot that kind of stuff. Okay. Laser targeting full analysis. This is it back at Chatsworth on the stage, in the laboratory set. The uh, what I call the Irwin Allen set, <laughs> with all the flashing lights in the background. Yeah. Here we are with um, with Josh about to meet the embryonic version of the gin, uh, played by Vern. Vern. Tell us about Vern. Vern Bob. Troyer. Yeah. Vern is a uh, little person who had worked with Rick Baker in a couple of films, including Men in Black. And uh, he's also playing the little baby gorilla in Mighty Joe Young. And he had been out in L.A. at the time, and I needed somebody really small. I think he's like the second smallest man in the world. He was out here working with Rick, getting fitted, and I had met with him at his hotel. Eventually, they worked out his deal, and we uh, got the molds from Rick Baker so we wouldn't have to bring him out and recast his body and everything. And we sculpted the little gin embryo suit. And he was really terrific because we had all this dry ice on the floor in this scene. And when you have dry ice, there's very little oxygen at floor level. And he had to crawl around in it a lot. And so in between takes, we would pick him up and take him out, get him air. We had oxygen tanks standing by on the stage just in case. And um, he was in there for, what, two days we had him in the yeah. suit running around the floor and uh, covered with slime. And the worst part about it was all the slime on the floor because everybody would walk through there and slip and stuff. We were like... Now be careful, <laughs> don't walk, and you couldn't see where the slime was because it was covered with fog. Right. So, and keeping the fog in was a whole other thing because they had to build like little dams around where, wherever the isolated shots were because the, the, the mist would just like disappear if you even breathed. And originally we had sprinkler systems going off in this room. Right, And uh, right. when the fire blew up, when the thing blew up, sprinklers went off, so it would be really wet and rainy in the room. It just, if we had that, then the slime and the fog, we would have never finished the day, so right. we canned the, the rain idea. And the other great thing about Vern as well is that, you know, it's not just gimmick casting because he is a little person. Um, although his voice had to be replaced for continuity's sake with, with Andrew Devoff's, um, Vern was acting. You know, he, he wasn't just in the suit for, for his size. He really performed well, I thought. The next big sequence that I was involved with shooting a lot of stuff for was when the djinn is born and the little transformation pieces from 
baby gin to you know big gin. Even a lot of the interior of the CAT scan stuff, those were all second unit. Insert, let those guys do it. Most of the stuff was shot first unit, but uh, again, it was one of those things where Bob wanted more of a transformation. We use, we use a lot of latex, you know, stretching and tearing latex because that always gives a kind of cool sort of muscle, ripping muscle and flesh texture that, that, that happens. Like these shots of, were all, a lot of reverse shots and there's the spinal cord sliding into place and that was sort of like this weird flipper hand and then the, hand, the, the flipper hand goes out of frame and comes back up. This was literally the suit with some latex glued over the top and ultra slime and then he just stuck his hand out and just looks like, it all looks like there's little pieces growing here and there. And that's Walter uh, tearing himself out of the little latex cocoon. Just one of those, you know, little transformation scene where they wanted just a couple little cutaway pieces and dissolves to allow for the transformation to look like more like, you know, bones removing, and you know, of course, sound effects makes a huge difference with all this kind of stuff. The second stage creature here is uh, Walter Phelan, who's also a creature effects guy, who was in um, Demon Knight, he played one of the demons in Demon Knight, the, the Tales from the Crypt film, and we had him in Dust Till Dawn, he played uh, one of the vampires in the vampire suits at the end in the big battle. So, we had his body cast, so we called him up and said, you wanna play another monster? for a day in this thing, you know, and, and uh, we sculpted the whole thing on him and, and did it, and he was terrific. And once again, it's, it's a creature effects guy who knows how to move in those suits, so it was, you know, I said, you're being born, you know, you're birthing from like this embryonic, you know, sack and everything, and uh, so you need to really, you know, your bones are cracking and your muscles are contorting and all this, and, and then I just said, rehearse, you know, let's do it, and he did it the first time, and I'm like, yeah, right on. It was, oh, yeah. you know, it's just like, you know, given that that moving around and cracking bone motion and everything. And it's great movement. It's very creepy as he sort of starts to move to the side. Um, if anything, it reminds me of um, Return of the Living Dead, you know, the, the, the tar, tar monster. Man, tar Man, yeah, which was, was creepy like a scarecrow type of thing. Yeah, right. But he's got, what's cool is he got that Andrew kind of majestic, you know, breath sure, in there sure. and, like, you know. I think that came across. I think all these tie together real well and really work. Like you, you, you feel the progression that it yeah. actually becomes Andrew, or actually becomes the Jin. Right. This is Buck Flower, who uh, he's been around for years, and I think he's like the quintessential bum. He's always playing a, this kind of character, but. I, a lot of other people came in and tried out for this part, and he came in and took his teeth out, and uh, and lo he just looked the part, and then he he had me rolling because, as you can see in the movie, the the fans actually really like this scene because uh, they get a really kick out of him, and he uh, came in and floored me. I was laughing so hard at his audition that I, I had tears coming, you know, from my eyes. So, uh, so anyway, I hired him on the spot. So, and then He's we got him, he had the crew laughing when we were filming this, so he had worked with uh, John Carpenter over the years. In fact, if you watch Escape from New York, he's the, uh, the guy that's getting beat up over the sink and uh, Snake Plissken turns him around and he goes, I'm the president. So that's him. And he's been in a lot of John Carpenter films and that's how I know him from those films. But this whole sequence, I mean, Buck is brilliant, but um, the almost 
vaudeville act of Buck Flower and Reggie Bannister. I, I want to try and pitch a sitcom, which is you know the pharmacist and the bum show, because I think these guys are great. They really play off each other really well. Yeah, and Re Reggie was also in Demolitionist. This is a perfect thing because he plays in makeup. We had to do some puppet heads of him, and and um, because he's been in all the Phantasm movies and other films that uh, had makeup effects involved, he knows how to play with it. He knows how to work that stuff, and and uh, he puts up with you know the gluing process and everything. So he was perfect to have on. Plus, he's funny. He's a good. Like I said, uh, the best part about the script in ways is all these bit characters are really uh, they really are peppered throughout the script. Yeah, and when you get guys that can rise to it and deliver it well, right. like these guys, this sequence works really well, I think. And also, I've got to give Buck credit. Um, it's my dialogue, word for word, up until he starts backing away. And then Buck improvised these incredible insults. As he starts backing off, Buck just throws in, what is it, you, you discomplectic afterbirth of a Chinese gangbanger. I mean, man. I, I'll, I'll he, be happy to take credit for that did. line in the years to come, but it's entirely book. It's great. <laughs> What's funny though is he did it a little different every time, and yeah. and uh, it was hard choosing which take which to use yeah. because uh, they were all funny in their own way. And yeah. actually, the TV version, in some ways, where they don't swear, is really funny too because they they went off to the side, him and Reggie, and they worked out Gandalf. a little routine, and uh, they cut out all the swear words, and they they did it, and they still had us laughing. Also, this features my uh, half a second cameo. The close-up of the pharmacist's hand crushing the bottle <laughs> is actually my hand. <laughs> and you cut your hand on it, too. Yeah, right. It was candy glass. He smashed it, and he had all these little chunks of glass stuck in his hand. Anything for art, Bob. Anything for art. <laughs> now, this was a few blocks from the dock where we were shooting at. And what's funny is, the night before we were shooting here, um, they had all the uh, camera equipment, everything locked up down at the docks, and somebody broke into the camera car, smashed through the gates, almost ran over a security guard, and there was a high-speed chase with the cops chasing our camera truck. It was on the news, and the cameras and everything are falling out of the back of the truck, bouncing down the road, and they had to throw out you know, spikes on the road and pop the tires, and they shot it full of holes. And um, it was funny, we, I woke up the next day and I get a phone call that we have no cameras for that night <laughs> to shoot. So they're trying, you know, the, the office is wrangling cameras and a whole package, they need everything. And uh, luckily there was no process film that goes out every night, otherwise we'd be screwed. <laughs> Tried to do a lot of uh, fun transition shots in this film and that was just one of them with the cigarette. A lot of uh, wipes in the dark and dissolves. Really keeps the movie moving along. Hey, you're not enjoying it. More Put than it one out. reviewer bitched about the amount of smoking that went on in this movie, which <laughs> makes me laugh. You know, it's a movie in which people get their faces ripped off. Right. They, they die of cancer in five seconds. And, uh, and these stupid PC reviewers say, well, we're not sure kids should see it because a lot of people smoke in it. Jesus. Well, even though there's a lot of smoking, there's several instances in here where it's... Uh, oh, yeah, Buck yeah. throws the cigarette yeah, away after... You know, yeah, the, the pharmacist dies, the bum looks at the cigarette and throws it down. Shannon walks in here and tells us to put, put it, it out. out. You know, yeah. They're not even enjoying it. We all learn to smoke from the movies. Yeah. <laughs>
Oh, great. They're right. It is a bad influence. <laughs> because movies, I mean, I don't think movies have a job necessarily to be a good influence or not. You know, it's like, and look at the people who smoke in this movie. A monster, a nasty-minded homeless guy, a neurotic, troubled heroine. You know, it's not like we're saying healthy, happy people smoke. Do you, um, do you want me to call Dr. Monteglio again? Well, I guess this all started, um, I got a call from an executive at Image, Eric Saltzgeber, who's an old friend of mine who used to be at New World, where I wrote some of the Hellraiser pictures. And um, they, they had the concept, they had the idea that they wanted to make an evil genie movie. I thought, man, that is the dumbest, worst idea. An evil genie, how bad could that be? But, you know, um, I had no money in the bank. So uh, I said to Eric, hell yeah, I'll take the meeting. You know, they did something that I've never had a company do before. I walked in, they handed me literally nearly a hundred Xerox sheets of research material, but all about gins or genies, Persian, Arabian legends and myths. And then I went home and read this stuff and it was cool. You know, there's, there was a lot of exciting stuff in there. Gradually over the period of about a month, I knocked together yeah, by the end of the month it was a story. I was going to say, the, the way I tend to work is I throw ideas, tones, feels, takes, rather than a strict narrative to make sure everybody's on the same page. And um, one thing I've got to say is it's pretty close to the story that ended up on the screen. I had a very good, obviously there are moments when you tear your hair out and you curse the people you're working with. But I had a good relationship with Image, I had a great relationship with Bob. When Bob came on, I knew the movie was in safe hands. But I'd say that of all the movies I've done, this is the one that stayed closest to the story I first came up with. Not a bad experience, and um, like I say, it really came together when, uh, when they, they started saying to me, we were talking to directors, and I started hearing the name Robert Kurtzman being bandied around. And I kept ringing Eric or kind of off the record saying, get Kurtzman, get Kurtzman, Kurtzman's the guy. Because um, the big thing, you know, I knew this to be true before I'd ever met him. And then when I met him, I realized it was, is that Bob, like me, is not somebody that's doing horror movies because we can't get work elsewhere. It's because we grew up loving this shit and just wanted to do it. And you know, that was the big thing for me. And you know, I knew he was a brilliant effects guy as well. I saw his movie, The Demolition, so I knew he could direct. <coughs> but it was mainly, you know, that I knew it would be in hands of somebody who cared about the genre. Well, the first time I heard about The Wishmaster was, I had dropped by an agency. I, I hadn't even signed with them. And a young agent there, the script had come across his desk. They were looking for directors and he thought that I would be perfect because of my effects background. It was a big effects movie, it had a tight schedule. So he sent me the script and I read it and uh, eventually got a call from someone who I don't remember, this is early in the game here, but they um, wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing the effects. And uh, I was kind of insulted actually, because <laughs> I, I really wanted to direct it and it was like they were interested in the effects. So I said uh, that I really wouldn't be interested in doing the effects if I wasn't directing the film. And so um, months went by, I figured out, oh, well that was that, there, I'm not gonna get that show not even get a meeting. Uh, then out of the blue I get a phone call and I get a meeting with Pierre and Clark and everyone. So I go down to a, a set they were shooting at a house. Or was that my second meeting? That might have been the second meeting. Uh, I had about three or four meetings with them uh, and each time you know it was more nerve-wracking because I 
you know, I'm like, well, obviously they like something. I'm going back, but am I going to get this or not, you know? And each meeting was pretty good, so had a good feeling about it. And uh, I, they had gotten a few recommendations from other people. I know Tom Renoni had re recommended me for the project, as well as Sam Ramey. They had given him a call. And Sam had seen the demolitionist and liked it and gave me a good plug. So um, anyway, I made the, the four me did the four-meeting thing and finally uh, got down to the wire, and, they, and I got the job. I was pretty blown away that I got it. And, uh, and then... Um, I knew Peter was involved. In fact, I might have even had a phone conversation with you when I read the script. I think I gave you a call mm -hmm. to say I dug it. But uh, anyway, then things kind of really happened fast after that. Once I got hired on, it was like we were thrown into prep and KMB started building stuff without even any oh, seed money. I mean, we didn't really even have a final budget on the film yet, but we had a deadline. They had a, sh had a shooting schedule and they wanted to shoot uh, beginning of February. It might have even been earlier than that. So. Immediately, it's the Christmas season. Everyone's leaving town and everything, and we're in prep. I went home at Christmas with, to see my family in Ohio, and uh, I spent the whole Christmas doing storyboards for the movie, drawing shot by shot. And, uh, and then John Bisson, who had worked on Demolitionist with me, doing conceptual design and storyboards, had started boarding and uh, doing um, concept stuff of the gin and the costumes and everything basically i was compiling all this stuff so that when we got into it we'd be able to just start full force and and i'd be able to hand everyone on the crew the art department and stuff ideas and say run with this stuff because we don't have much time and we got to put it all on the screen so uh and then of course we had all while we're doing all of this right before prep we have all our last minute script adjustments to deal with the uh powers that be it was like i don't know five <laughs> producers sitting there and we're all sitting around a table and throwing out ideas and trying to somehow make them work in the in the structure and in the script and everything so but that I, I had a really good time with those guys working even you know with pierre and everybody i actually didn't have a big problem i actually thought it was a pretty uh fun collaborative effort there yeah. in, in pre-production and and me and peter had a good time working together so you know, I'd be calling him up on the phone all the time, and we were really sitting around all the time, kind of uh, going over. We'd go through a meeting with them, and then we have a little meeting afterwards where we'd say, "Now this is how this this is how we should really put it in in as far as the, how staging action and things like that, so that we because you know we had to do everything in a certain amount of time, and we wanted to really uh, plan it out so we could get the most on the screen. So. Yeah, I remember it was funny in, uh, in some of the meetings because we'd start getting enthusiastic. Bob would always get out of his seat, start like walking up and down the room. Yeah, this guy falls here, bam, he hits, you know, whatever. And we're screaming at each other. Then the guts come out. Yeah, yeah, and then they can wrap around his neck. And like we'd be on this little fugue state for about three minutes and then we'd start and we'd look around. And, and, and we'd sit back down. <laughs> yeah, we'd sort of be sitting there with a, hmm, <laughs> what madmen are we working with? <laughs> Oh yeah. She's <laughs> done some catalog descriptions for me in the past, but uh, she could be of some help, uh, provided you catch her in a in a good mood. So the scene in the, uh, the medical lab was actually my first day of second unit, in terms of doing pickups of the gin slicing this face off, which is one of the first things. All these bodies that are on the tables were all provided by K&B through uh, various other projects that we had done and worked on and stuff. But 
there was a couple shots that we needed to get of the fingernail sliding underneath the skin, cutting, and then uh, him pulling the face off. I don't look at it as, as gooey and bloody and gore and stuff because to me it's not. To me it's fake blood and it's a sculpture of a skinned face with muscle and stuff. I mean, I don't look at it like gory or gruesome. I look at it more technically because that's the way I, I build it, you know. I have to do a cast of the actor's face, then I have to sculpt a prosthetic that has a simulated skin removed with muscle. So we use, you know, medical textbooks and reference books and stuff like that. So it's very technical to me. I don't really look at it as like, oh, that's really gory or or gruesome or, or nasty or anything. I think the other thing too is that it's all involved with the context of the movie. The shot where Andrew peels the face off of the dummy is a dummy head with the face on top of it. There's some fake blood and this material called ultra slime, which is used in like all the alien movies. Anytime you need like gooey, slimy, stringy stuff. And it's just peeled off and the ultra slime sticks to it and it looks gooey. But, you know, to me, it's ultra slime and fake blood and a fake head. I'm just under a lot of stress, but I'm fine, honestly. Here's Robert Englund from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger fame. He happened to be just perfect for Beaumont, the art dealer. He actually gives it a really humorous touch. Yeah. It's kind of like I, I think of it as uh, the Christopher Lee role, the kind of roles that Chris Lee started playing once he was done with being Dracula. Right. You know, if you look at some of the later Hammer movies, Chris Lee would be the scientist, the ethnologist, the art collector, whatever. So I think it's, it's kind of a neat little thing for the real genre buffs that Robert Englund, the most famous movie monster today, is in our movie in the equivalent of the Chris Lee role. I told the dean's office that the paperwork would be there tomorrow. I'm busy. And how about this? Okay. Good. I think you're mistaking me for someone else. I'm Alex. Raymond Beaumont must have called you about me. Oh, yeah. What an insufferable prick that man is. Still, it's not your problem. Unless, of course, you're stupid enough to be working for him. Or sleeping with him? <laughs> no. Oh, good. Well. That establishes your discerning good taste. All oh, these um, uh, no, tennis no, scene, no, no, the, the exterior work. college Up stuff, all of this, and uh, was shot at um, uh -huh. Occidental College in Absolutely Glendale. And I think we were there for like four days or something, shooting all around the campus. And there was a lot of kids playing rock and roll music out of their dorms, and we had to try to get them to shut up so that we could film. Give me a hundred dollars and I'll <laughs> shut up, man. But it, out of all the colleges, I, we went scouting uh, for all the locations, and this was really the only college that had like somewhat of a gothic feel. I wanted to play up that old Hammer movie thing and yeah. try to make as much of it, you know, collar. They had columns and pillars and you know that kind of architecture, where everything else was more modern and you know, because L.A. really isn't that old for. Trying to get a gothic feel in L.A. is hard. Plus, this was the only school that had an outdoor amphitheater that was a oh, yeah. uh, Greek amphitheater. It was gorgeous. And I, I saw that and said, we have to shoot everything here. It's I great. couldn't believe you got it. You know, I'd written this scene with, with that taking place in an exterior amphitheater in the college. And, and I was waiting. As Bob said, you know, film is compromised. And I was waiting for the phone call that said, you know what, we're just going to have to do this in a rehearsal hall. But uh, yeah, he found one that looked fantastic. Wow. It looked great. I'm glad you approved. 
Do you want to try something else? A different style, maybe? Tighter? Oh, no. Don't like feeling confined. Had enough of that. Okay, then. Follow me. Pleasure. This is actually the first day of shooting here at the clothing store. Very first day. And we're at a structure store down at Ventro Boulevard. This is uh, Gretchen Palmer playing Ariella. Like all the blues in this scene. Yeah. Uh, all the, his, it works with his eyes and his shirt. He has blue contacts in. Right. Andrew, Andrew decided early on that he wanted to change his eye color. So the problem was that uh, Production wouldn't pay for the contacts when he was normal. They only no, paid for the monster contacts. So me and Andrew actually but split the cost of buying two sets of contact lenses so yeah. that he could uh, have them. It really makes him because oh, when choice. you get in with those really tight close-ups, it really looks great. And it really right, plays right? with his his shirt. Really bounces that blue light. You know, absolutely right. But the combination of the blue shirt and tying the black suit, I don't know whether Karen was like ahead of the game or whether. Gin fashion as influence and stuff because I've seen in the last two or three weeks I've seen a lot of talk show guys right wearing the same thing. Yeah, I I noticed that last night too. Ann keeps pulling uh, pointing yeah. that out. Look, he's wearing the gin suit. Right. Some other time. No. Oh, I'm. Uh, I'm. Actually, I think in any genre. Um, you know, we've got various phrases you use in the business, like, oh, this is an Irving the Explainer scene or something. And the problem is that, you know, very often you need an Irving the Explainer scene. You've got to have somebody basically almost say in dialogue that they wouldn't say in real life because they're explaining things that the audience needs to know rather than the characters need to know. So, yeah, it's a tricky thing to do, and I think the importance is, is you know, from a writing point of view, the importance is brevity, humor character stuff and keep it moving and um, and I guess those would be the same rules yeah. when, when directing no it. because like, you'd be amazed at how little you really need to tell an audience for them to know what's going on I mean, I mean I think the horror fans come to expect these things yeah I mean uh, obviously the most fun is the the scenes of real horror or this you know the action scenes and um, all this stuff in between but the good thing about all these scenes in this is that the writing is so good, the um, the dialogue is so good, I think you do stay kind of glued to it. God bless um, you, Bob. But also, I think it is important as well to have them directed briskly. You know, it's <laughs> just like, do them fast. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the audience caught on to so many beats when we test screened this that we didn't expect, we thought we would have to even clarify further. Right. Uh, and they didn't, they, they totally went went with it and knew what was going on. They got the three wishes, they got everything. And so you don't really need to over explain anything. You just need to keep it moving along. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, I'd, I'd like to say a word for horror fans of whom we are too, um, that I think a, a lot of executives, uh, you know, production company people tend to underestimate the horror audience. They think because they like, and they do, 
uh, the gloopy stuff, the, the dumb, and they don't pay attention. And I think that's really unfair. I think horror movie audiences, like Bob says, they know this stuff. They're, with it. they're actually usually one step ahead of you rather than one step behind. And the worst thing you can do to them, the way to lose the audience, is to over-explain, to, is to condescend to them. You've actually got to assume that, in fact, they'll get it. If you imply something, they'll get it. You don't need to hit that nail on the head. We shot this up in Valencia at a stage. It was an existing police set. We just went in and painted it and decorated it up and went in. I think we, we had a we shot this all in a day, didn't we? I think it might have been two days. Was it two? But but it wasn't a whole the first day wasn't a whole day. You did the shootout definitely in one day. And I've gotta say that I've never seen Bob happier <laughs> than on the day he was doing the shootout. It's like that's when he was most happy, when there were 3,000 squibs exploding off people's bodies. Oh yeah, I was all smiles this day. <laughs> Man, it was just great. I, I really have fun doing these kind of action scenes because, first off, we have a really limited schedule, but that's the best part about doing these is, is coming up with something exciting in you know, a small amount of time and having fun with it. You know, it's... Rip, we had to rip this guy's jaw off here, and that's once again Greg Funk from K and B, getting his jaw ripped off. The stone of secret fire on this type of movie and on the schedule, the crew has to be behind you, or or you're not going to make it. You're not going to get your movie done, and you're not going to get the best uh, product on the screen. So um, you have to really uh, make it. Uh, you know, it's demanding, but make it fun. You know, because they're working long hours, right. and and if they think the director is abusing them or being a prick or you know it's like yeah he, he's got to run a, right. then a they, happy they, show then they then, you know we had several major we had a couple major weeks where we were going over on we had uh, you know some 13 14 hour days um, and you know if the crew if, uh, if they weren't having fun they would have uh, revolted and left uh, <laughs> yeah right sorry sir we're closed I'm trying to locate that was a puppet head And we actually cut out about, uh, I don't know, 10 shots here <laughs> of him getting shot. At, in the original cut, it went on and on and on, and they just plastered him with bullets. But, of course, the ratings board saw this scene, and it was actually the most offensive thing in the movie for them. Was the guy getting the jaw ripped off, and uh, the, how many times this guy got shot? But that's interesting. So. That ties in with what we were saying, because in a way, that's not fantasy horror. That's like right. bullets and bodies. Right. But, but, you, but you're but, happy with the way it ended up, right? Oh yeah, it was yeah. originally cut long just for okay. the for to have excess, you know, so the ratings board would cut something and leave your and, and, alone. yeah, and leave yeah. some things alone, which they did, which was great. Throw some Christians to the lions, so right? <laughs> well, now you'd have to go through me. And that is something I would love to see.
he was on Army of Darkness. He played one of the Deadites. But uh, the stunt guys t tend to bring in, you know, on these day player guys that just come in for days and, and they get shot up or do, you know, the hard stunts. And we had this big fight scene in this this thing to do, and uh, so he got this good stunt guy to come in and do it. His name's Dennis Dangerous. <laughs> no, I'm serious. But we shot this up in Valencia at a stage. It was an existing police set. We just went in and painted it and decorated it up and went in. I think we we had a we shot this all in a day, didn't we? I think it might have been two days. Was it two? But but it wasn't a whole. The first day wasn't a whole day. You did the shootout definitely in one day, and I've got to say that I've never seen Bob happier than on the day he was doing the shootout. It's like that's when he was most happy, when there were 3,000 squibs exploding off people's bodies. Oh yeah, I was all smiles this day. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Originally when I came on board the film, uh, Pierre David had uh, told me that we were going to be shooting the film in Canada. And I don't remember if you remember that, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I wasn't looking forward to it, but uh, <laughs> mainly because, uh, and finally we did convince him to shoot it down here, um, was uh, if we shot in L.A., I have such a big pool of people I've worked with down in L.A. And, you know, a lot of people are on the film, uh, makeup people, uh, effects people, visual effects people. Uh, uh, there's a whole tremendous team of people we've assembled here. I wouldn't have known anybody in Canada, and so I think uh, we would have got about maybe half the production value we got out of the film if we had shot there. And, um, you know, production designers, and there's just, we had so many little things that could have fallen through the cracks if, if we weren't able to pull those things out and make them, you know, within a several days because we had the effect shop around the corner and we had, you know, everyone was in town. So anytime you needed something, you could pull in a favor. I mean, we didn't have to look for actors to put suits on that were going to Canada because the effects guys played the creatures. I mean, we had everybody in the movie pretty much that gets killed as an effects guy uh, in some way or another in, in the party scenes and the opening and such. So, um, you know, and all those guys put in all this extra time working on the film because they wanted... Uh, contribute they wanted to be a part of it and you know by they got to play in it so they got to design their own costumes and they got to build them and play in it and follow it all the way through and it was a big deal they had a lot of fun on it couldn't have done that in Canada basketball I lost track of time okay just uh, just give me a second okay Uh, real quick, I want to give uh, credit to David Hanman, oh, yeah. uh, who yeah. did a terrific job. We cut this movie on film, and uh, David, a lot of you know the editors now are cutting on Avid, and when they decided they wanted to cut this on film, you know, a lot of people are out of touch with film because they've been doing it digitally for so long, and luckily David uh, kept up on his film cutting. He had uh, cut Deep Star Six and Jason Goes to Hell and some other horror films I'd worked on. And 
got going and uh, said, hey, you want to cut a horror movie? And he said, yeah, came on board. We had a great time on this. We were locked in this little cubby hole down in, on Vine and Santa Monica. Rider Sound, they had a little editing room there for us, a little three-room thing, and it was us and the assistant editors all crammed in this little space for like, you know, four months. Well, I think the weird thing now is that like film is now the cheapest way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. which, which didn't used to be the case. Well, it, the cheapest because um, if you go digital, you have to, you then uh, have to scan everything down and, and so that you can work on, on the computer. And uh, so your dailies are dumped to video and you never really get the chance to watch it on film, but big budget films do both, um, uh, video and, uh, and and they cut on the Avid, so, or they do film dailies and then they still have it transferred and cut on the Avid. Mm -hmm. It's just on the smaller films, you have the option of either picking and cutting on the Avid or, or cutting on film. And if you're doing a film with opticals, the best thing is to project it so that you can see all those imperfections ahead of time. Because you, I mean, when you're cutting on even, when you're looking at a video monitor, there's a lot of stuff that you don't see until you blow it up. You see it 30 feet on a projected on a screen, and you go, "I never saw that that person in the background was wearing a right a bright blue suit in the <laughs> shot or something," you know. So yeah, but it's weird how fast that thing turned around. I mean, I've I've been in the business a little less than 10 years, and um, the guy who cut Hellbound was was an old time editor from England called Richard Marden. Did a lot of prestigious movies. And he was cutting on film. And so just, you know, in, in the nine years I'd been working in the business, film is now this, like you say, it's this weird thing where you have to look around for an editor who can actually do it. It's happened so and, fast. And do it on a schedule because yeah. it, it does take twice as long to cut on, uh, on film. You can't make those crack decisions right there and, right. and then put it back the way it was. It's, you have no reference to go back to. I mean, if, if you go into a scene and completely rearrange it and then try to remember what you had before and put it back, it's not that easy. It takes a while and it's, mm -hmm. people don't realize that anymore. And then you look at films like Jaws and stuff were completely cut on film, and, um, <clears throat> but they had enormous post-production schedules. Where, whereas, you know, we had a film that uh, wrapped principal photography in April and it's in theaters by September. Yeah. And it was like a rocket ride. There was no time for anything and no time for mistakes. So, which there were plenty of. <laughs> and we still had to work around them. I mean, there, you know, the first cut of this film, we went in and gutted it completely down to, to a really fast-moving movie um, just so we could get the, the basic pace down. And then we had to go back in and, and kind of re, uh, lay in the, the, the important character notes and, and plot points and everything. But we had it basically cut down to the bare minimum action scenes throughout, you know, in the first cut. And it didn't work, but it was a great process because you knew, right. you know, in looking at it, what was wrong with it right from the first cut and um, going back and fixing it. But it gave you like this perfect yeah. skeleton of the movie. Right, and then exactly. you could just start putting where, the flesh on. Where normally they do it, I think it goes the opposite. They normally 
you know, have this three hour first cut. Right. And then they have to figure out what they can lose. Well, we we tried to figure out what we could lose in the first cut because of our schedule. <laughs> and then we had to go back in and put the necessities back in, you know. I, I think this is one of the creepiest scenes in the movie um, where the audience realizes again a little ahead of Hi. Alex um, that she's sitting in a room not with Wendy Durleth but with the gin and I think uh, Jenny O'Hara who was great in all her scenes is particularly brilliant in this one um, I know that um, this is one of the moments way back um, when I knew that Bob was the right guy for the job um, because when I was writing this scene, the phrase I always had in my head was the bomb under the table, which is Hitchcock's phrase about the audience knows something's going to go off and the characters don't. And uh, without me ever using that phrase to Bob, um, just after they'd, uh, he'd been brought onto the project, we were talking about this scene. He said, you know why I love this scene? Because it's the bomb under the table scene. And I thought, ah, okay, good. And, uh, you know, obviously Jenny knows it's the bomb under the table scene as well. And... Um, both actresses work really well in the scene, but I mean, Jenny is superb. Well, this was, it, it was really fun shooting this scene, actually, because believe it or not, they did this in entire takes, you know, yeah, each time, which was, yeah, each time they had, and this is a really long scene. And, um, you know, once again, it's the camera moving back and forth, the background slightly moving out of focus. Weird, creepy. That was a nice little element she yeah. threw in there. And like you say, that relates to Andrew's movements. Andrew's mm -hmm. got that thing with the tapping finger, and we see her finger going. See her tapping on her blouse. But the gin itself, the gin, if it existed, would be all there was. Imagine that. The only magical thing in a rationalist world. A vulnerable world of disbelief, where no reason would ever rescue you. Your science saving. Oh. <laughs> he would have a fine old time, wouldn't he? <laughs> this isn't a joke. No, it's not funny. Are you hungry? I'm not hungry, I'm not thirsty, I'm not... Why do you keep trying to do things for me? I like how she handles that moment too, where she does realize um, what's going on. Right. And it's almost like she finds it humorous because she's fallen into this trap, or you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I think Tammy really seized the character and was with it, and and had like these these slightly, you know, at first glance odd response to certain moments and then you think yeah that's exactly right <laughs> match wits with a creature older than time match wits with a prince of the dark dominions pit your tiny 20th century brain against one who walked the spaces between the worlds and trod the wings of angels beneath his conquering feet oh Alexander you're a delight, really. You are. <laughs> <laughs> 
glad I can amuse you. Oh, I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Let me make it up to you. What can I do? I must be going now. Sit down. That was the old switcheroo gag. Yeah. Where we have uh, Jenny O'Hare on the couch and the camera moves away from her. And she got up and moved, and Andrew slipped into her spot. So when the camera whipped back around, he was standing there. And I also love the way Bob changes style here from um, relatively static, slow things on the couch where it's all dialogue and it's creepy. And then once Andrew's in instead of Jenny, you get this, can I say Brian De Palma? You know, whatever, this kind of whirl-round thing uh, that really... You know, I, I don't imagine the audience sits there thinking, oh, look, he's changed camera style, but they get it in motion. It's like the ante has been up. Well, which is funny, because we did have another scene like that with uh, her in the bath. We, we didn't use it, but uh, we shot that spiraling in the basketball court thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it was, she was on a Lazy Susan gag, you know, where she was spinning and the camera's counter, countering her. Um, so the background's moving in a weird way. And we kind of get the same effect here with the Steadicam when you're in close on an actor and he's moving in the background is blurry and out of focus and really moving. So and it even looks, you know, especially in the 185, it, it really, that movement really sells. Yeah. The side-to-side -side motion's so much bigger when sure. it's in 185. Sure. And Three wishes, Alexandra. Doesn't that intrigue you? Just a little... Anything you want. Anything? You ask for anything. I must grant it. A trip to the moon. A visit to Pharaoh's Egypt. Uh, what happened if I wished you dead? Why, how remarkably original, Alexander. And when we shot this um, I'll tell you what. shot here where he blows his head off, it's a digital shot. It's a digital comp of a top of a, we had a fake top of Andrew's head that uh, we shot against blue screen that had an air mortar that blew up all this brain matter out. Then we took that and comped it on top of a shot of Andrew from the set that we shot of him blowing his brains out. And on that day we had a uh, big squib mounted on the back of his head and I remember it popped off and, and it rang his bell pretty, pretty bad. Andrew was pretty unhappy. Uh, and uh, what was funny though is that I used that shot and comped in the exploding head to it. And what's great is the fact that it, there was a big concussion there and his reaction was great, but he didn't break it. Even though he, had, he it was painful, he didn't break his performance. So I was able to use the shot. And, uh, and the fact that that really jerked his head like that really sells the effect. Because yeah. you see his whole head kind of shudder when that gun goes off and it really sells. What are you doing? Granting your wishes. Here we are in Red World. Now this was a really big, fun Conan the Barbarian set. Yeah. <laughs> this was all fiberglass walls with uh, this fabric stuff stretched over them. And we put lights on the outside and pulsed them so it was all glowing. We're, we're inside the opal now. 
And but it looks like a discotheque. It looks. <laughs> now this is actually this whole concept came up. This whole Red World look. Uh, early on, I uh, started working with John Bisson again on sketches, and we came up with this whole like domed bone structure that went up to the top and came down to a throne in the center, and um, and then a series of tunnels that were similar, and uh, it really is pretty close to what we had on paper. You know, the concept is is all there. These are nice steady cam moves through the tunnel, mm -hmm. with, uh, spiraling up around the ceiling. Well, the steady cam guy got a workout on this show. <laughs> Ron, he was running all over the place, up and down the halls, and I kept having him like spin the camera even further than it could, than he could really spin it. You know, he kept having to readjust it so he could get it further up, so it would look like the dog's POV was running around the ceiling and everything. Once again, this whole set was filled with smoke on the floor, so we had to like block off all ends of the tunnel and then pipe it in from all the sides. And downtime was like, you know, we'd we'd get the shot and then we'd take five minutes to reset up, and uh, we'd have to, you know, reprime the smoke tanks, and it was a big ordeal just to keep it in there. And then every time the actors ran through it, it would like move away and reveal the black floor. And here's a optical composite of uh, Andrew's eye behind a crystal wall. The gin is looking from outside the opal into what's going on inside. Now I really like this transition shot coming up. It's one of my favorite in the film. Oh, oh, the well, we didn't really um, have a, we only had so much money for optical, so we couldn't really transform her back again. It'd be another optical shot, so I came up with a, the old fashion trick to sell that. Yeah. Shannon? Shannon, where are you? We've got to get out of here. in. We're so connected now. Wherever you go, there I'll be. Wherever you are, I will find you. Fuck you! Let me say something real quick about the driving stuff. Uh, Kurt Bryan, who did the stunt work on Demolitionist, um, did, the, uh, did the big motorcycle crash scene in Demolitionist. Shot uh, all that car driving stuff they, down the streets and one night after we were done rapping he shot all this uh, speeding precision car driving stuff but uh, he did a terrific job on this as well as doing that full body burn in the film and and uh, he had a lot of good stunt people doing a lot of stuff on this film that we wouldn't normally never gotten for the budget. Thank you. 
here we have Tony Todd of Candyman fame. Excuse me, uh, is your name on the list? You have got to help me. Originally, uh, this, we had shot a scene that was um, where we had Tony Todd hanging upside down over a bunch of spikes with a rope on fire. And initially we wanted a water tank gag. I remember us fighting to get the water tank gag in and um, they wanted us to shoot this other thing so we shot this uh, spike thing. Luckily we had the chance to go back and do the water tank gag after we did that. Uh, we managed to make this scene even better, I think. Oh yeah, totally. Um, and it, it's another example about what Bob was talking about before, about the community helping each other. Because I think uh, even when they'd agreed in principle to let us redo it, they still had a big issue about where they were going to find a water tank and how much it was going to be. And then Tom Renone, who'd worked on Lord of Illusions, came up to me, you know, because he knew I went back with Clive a long way, and he said, look, there was one, the, exactly the tank we'd need. I know it was there as part of the, the set on Lord of Illusions. Um, so I called Clive. Clive put me on to... I guess Steve Hardy would be in the production. Anyway, you know, by a series of phone calls, all thanks to Tom's memory. Um, oh, that's right. It was owned by somebody. It was a genuine water tank. Right. Prop, it was owned I by think. a magician. Yeah. I believe. Right. Right. And we rented it, and then we had to test it to make sure it wouldn't leak and everything. Yeah. And then we had to figure out how to fill the thing with like I don't know, 800 gallons Some of water or whatever like the hell that, it was. Yeah. It weighed like 3,000 pounds or something when it was filled. And uh, we had to figure out how to move it and then get it out of the shot so we could continue the rest of the scene and not have it in the background because we were shooting out of order again. You know, we were shooting Tony in the tank first uh, so we could take him, get him cleaned up, and then pick up the other shots that we needed without him. It was an interesting night. <laughs> it was cold up there, too. And it was the last night, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, this uh, was the last night of shooting. Yeah. Um, we went back up to the mansion and, and got all this stuff in Chatsworth. <laughs> the Great Republic of Chatsworth. Houdini did it in two and a half minutes. And Tony was terrific. He actually got in this water and oh, yeah. held his breath with a straight jacket on. And the only thing we couldn't do was uh, the original Houdini gag is done upside down. Right. But it, it was too problematic, so we, we didn't do that. I remember trying to find out the uh, if two and a half minutes was the exact yeah, right. time that Houdini took to get out of that Oh, that's tank. right. It was weird. Wait. That was like a little synchronicity thing because I just, you know, right. I, I'm not really big on research. And I just put in, Houdini did it two and a half minutes. And then people got a hair up their ass about what it was. And I think it was literally while Bob was trying to shoot it, some of the producers were on phones. Clark, to, yeah, Clark, Clark got on the was, phone. He called up the Magic Castle and wrangled up because they were time, determined and it to was get two and a half and minutes. It was. Yeah. I'm trying to get you out of here. Come on, you gotta go. Hell off of me, Shannon. We have got to leave now. Trust me. No, trust me. You obviously haven't seen Beaumont's new friend. You remember the guy from the basketball court? Here we get a good uh, view of uh, Beaumont's mansion Shannon, interior Shannon. for the first time. Now we're at the party scene and we're getting close to all hell breaking loose here. Right. <laughs> It's like it, it's a nice sort of bookend to the movie. We start with this all hell breaking loose in the Persian palace, and we end with all hell breaking loose in, you know, the equivalent of a palace of a, a powerful 20th century guy. God, how I'd love to host a party like that. Shannon. And 
right? Here we are, uh, first effect of the big uh, party scene. Uh, Area 51 did this, a beautiful uh, transition into glass. The explosion, which we had uh, stunt guys on wires and we yanked them out of frame. And then we shot a background plate and comped it all later with the uh, 3D explosion that they did in the computer. We had uh, the Pazuzu statue now uh, positioned at the party. We have uh, the snakes that are built into it come to life. And this is Tom Renoni, actually with the uh, snake biting and twisting his flesh out. Tom put on the mask and then uh, screamed and fell, which is funny because I asked him if he needed any pads or anything to fall on it. He said, hell no, like a good Texan. Uh, the whole piano sequence was actually something that um, Bob had storyboarded extensively. And then I shot all the stuff. And then we actually had a fake head of him where you could actually see the wires grinding into this, his, uh, his skin. We shot that head coming off three times. One time they wanted more blood, then they wanted less blood. But we actually shot a great gag shot of that, me and Howard, of Bob's fake head eating Doritos. This is great. We had about 100 extras on the set this day, you know, and we had them running around all over the place screaming. We hear the gin makes a fireplace erupt. And this is uh, Kurt Bryant, our stunt coordinator, doing a full body burn and then diving out this window here. And he's running into other stunt people who are also on fire. When we did that, uh, there was so much heat coming out of that fireplace. And they put this stuff on the stunt guys after they wrap them. And they put these thermal underwear on that are dipped in sub-zero chemicals that keep your, you know, it's like 30 degrees below zero or something. And they put these suits on and then dress in the wardrobe. And then they douse themselves with this stuff called jet fuel, which is like a really combustible liquid uh, fuel. And uh, then a guy throws a, uh, hits him with a little lighter and it, it goes up. So all the cameras have to be running ahead of time so that uh, as soon as he's lit, you're rolling and every, the action goes. Drinking champagne and he's having a good time. This is one of those slow motion shots where everyone else is moving kind of slow and he's moving faster. We have unfinished business. It's going to stay unfinished. Listen to their screams, child. Listen to the music of their agony. You bastard! You can save them, Alexandra. Just wish it away. No, I won't. I can't. When he throws the, uh, the spear here into the wall, we had to uh, obviously couldn't actually throw it into the wall and have it stick in the same shot with her in the frame. So we had him throw it past her with a forced perspective so that she was a few feet behind so we can get the initial pass past her while she ducks. And then uh, we had a uh, trident in the wall that had a spark hit on it so that we could whip pan to it and the spark would go off and it would look like, and when you cut it together, it would look like the same action. So this was actually the same hallway over and over again that they just kept redressing. Now here's the scene with Robert Englund. Now, first unit shot all the stuff of him with Tammy, you know, going down, choking. He gets in the he spits that out. So then we added, I, I wanted to do like a little thing transformation. So 
all these little elements were all added later as I built an insert floor and we pulled all those tentacles in and then reversed the film so they all look like they're shooting out. So there's literally three transformation shots. The first shot is the uh, silicone tentacle moving around, uh, flopping, and the second one is a reverse shot where we pulled all these tentacles out and we pulled them in, we laid the tentacles out and then we pulled them in through a hole in the floor. And then when you reverse the film, it looks like they're shooting outward. And then the third one is we actually took the big mechanical creature that we see the tentacle coming out of, and we took the fiberglass understructure out. So I was able to actually just use the foam skin to pull it inward through this hole. So it looked like it was kind of undulating and growing. So lot, all, these, all these shots were all second unit. The tentacle wrapped around her leg, her pushing the vase over, the vase falling, her hand grabbing. This was all second unit stuff that we shot. Then we had a girl double. That's another thing people don't really realize is unless you see the lead actress face in a shot, it's probably somebody else. It's probably like, you know, the stand-in with her wardrobe on because, you know, we did all the shots with the black goo on her leg and her stabbing the tentacle and the black goo shooting everywhere. Four warriors here are played by uh, four guys from K&B, Gino Crognali, Brian Ray, um, Henrik Van Ryzen, and James Hall. And uh, they're all guys that uh, dig wearing suits and we had them like trapped on this hot set for hours and they put up with hell and got all these terrific shots. In the original French version of Beauty and the Beast, they, there was these uh, cool statues that they had built in the sides of fireplaces and uh, they look around whenever you walk from one side of the room to another it would follow you. And I thought it was a really creepy image and I wanted to incorporate that in this film. Have, he had so many art pieces and such that we could uh, really play that up. The film was extremely ambitious in terms of the amount of effects that we needed to accomplish in, in the time frame. And it was a kind of thing where at the end, mainly the end sequence when the djinn shows up at the party and all hell breaks loose. They had initially scheduled a certain number of days to shoot it, but because the scenes were big, a lot of action, a lot of stunts, a lot of effects, first unit would go in and shoot as much as they could and then as per their shooting schedule they would then have to move to the hallways and then subsequently into the room of the gods so what we ended up doing was sort of catch up where we would follow the first unit and go into that set and pick up all the elements that they were unable to get for time frame and that's sort of how it ended up working but the sets were all built together you know the the big party room and the hallways and the room of the gods were all connected. So we would be in the main room where the piano was and then the first unit would be in the hallway. So they'd be, you know, 100 yards away. So 
as soon as we'd get ready to start shooting something, they'd go, all right, quiet. And then as soon as they'd get ready to start shooting something, you know, we'd be over here trying to roll. And, and um, it, was, uh, it was very difficult because, you know, when, when you get to the end of a shoot and, and, you know, everyone's trying to finish on time and we got all the stuff to shoot and how the hell are we going to get it all done? And, you know, um, it was pretty crazy. But we were shooting simultaneously. And that actually helped a lot because... Anytime I had questions, I could go over to first unit and grab Bob and say, come here. He's got a great, the Jin has a great personality, and that's what makes him likable. You know, there's a couple lines where he's like, oh, well, then fuck it. And just his delivery is just, he's like enunciating these, these swear words so perfectly, and it really makes a difference. And, you know, the one thing that I always, I always argue with people about is, you know, at the point when horror films were lowbrow about three years ago, Everyone was like, oh, you know, horror films, no one sees horror movies anymore. And then Silence of the Lambs comes out, and it wins Best Picture, and no one would ever refer to it as a horror movie. They'd say, oh, it's a psychological thriller. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a guy who's sewing women's skin together to make a dress. That's not a horror movie. Is that, I guess Psycho wasn't a horror movie either then, because it's basically a very similar plot. So, you know, now things have, things have come around and, and horror films are now more respectable. I mean, you have people like Robert Rodriguez and, and Wes Craven all doing horror films and, and the movies are making money. And that's what it's about. It's about making money. But the advantage now is, is that whereas a few years ago you couldn't get any A-talent people to play in a horror movie because their agents would be like, no, 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 no. Now you have people climbing out of the woodwork to play in these movies. And, you know, Andrew is a perfect example because he's a great actor. And uh, he just brought that character to life. He had a really, he had a great affinity for it. And, you know. Bob screened it for us at the, uh, down in Hollywood at the post-production sound place. And it was myself and Howard and several of the studio executives and people from live. And I had been in Santa Fe th through the entire summer when he was editing the movie, so I hadn't seen anything. And I was blown away. I couldn't believe that he had, that he had pulled this movie off that looks like a 15 or $20 million movie. It's got a great feel to it. You know, the guy who plays the gin, Andrew Deloff, is unbelievable. And that was one of the first times where I actually went to Dailies and saw Dailies of a guy in makeup and went, this guy is incredible. He was scary even in the raw footage before it was even cut together. I, I thought, man, oh man, this is gonna be amazing. Really amazing.
this will make someone a very nice engagement gift. <laughs> that I'm really happy with the movie. I'm delighted the way the script was interpreted. I think Bob did a great job. And uh, I want to thank the whole cast and crew because everybody did work really hard. Uh, long hours, long days. Uh, and some unpleasant days as well, I think, just in terms of physical discomfort. But um, everybody gave 100%. And uh, I'm really pleased with the finished result. You know, I had a great time working on this film with Peter, with all the uh, various artists on the film, and KMB, Tom Renoni. Um, everybody came through 110%, and um, all the creative people, uh, a tremendous job, did a tremendous job on this film. And the actors, everyone really came through and uh, gave 110%, and um, I think it shows. I think the performances uh, show in the film. Everyone from Image and uh, uh, Pierre Davis' company, Image, uh, and Live, they all uh, were really supportive on this film. And, uh, you know, uh, got me as much as I could, uh, really helped me put the money on the screen, and um, I'd like to thank them. I think the, the bottom line here is, you know, I wanted to make a film that uh, everyone would have fun watching. It was just a, a really good time at the movies. Uh, as Sam Raymond would say, a, a popcorn popper. Uh, and, uh, and I'd work with everybody again in, in a second.